This week on the Backtable Podcast. The key question is that, is the patient still symptomatic? And like the scenario that you're describing, you put it in, it's like a big effusion. It's been tapped before, you know, it's free-flowing, but all of a sudden, for whatever reason, now it comes back inoculated. The patient comes to the ER and, you know, they've been getting a liter off religiously for one week and all of a sudden it's not, and that's an issue. But it's like, well, how symptomatic are you? Like, are we meeting your treatment goals? And that is like the absolute key question. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Now, a brief message from our sponsor. This discussion is supported by Philips OBL and ASC Solutions Symphony Suite, the industry leader in opening cardiovascular office-based labs and ambulatory surgery centers. With the convenience of a single trusted point of contact, they offer more of what you need to turn your passion into reality, including a full range of high-performing, highly specialized equipment and services, devices, financial options, site planning, guidance on construction partnerships, and more. When it comes to opening an OBL or ASC, Symphony Suite delivers convenience and support as the expert you need, the partner you trust. To learn more, visit philips.com slash symphonysuite. Now, back to the episode. Today, I have a great episode with two of my co-hosts, Ali Behetti and Chris Beck. Welcome, guys. Hey, good to be here. Thanks, Aaron. This is unique, right? We haven't had this combo yet. I've never been on a podcast with Ali. Yeah. Oh, you're right. That's so cool. I get to actually see your face in person. No, it's a big deal for me, not for you. Wait, Ali, have we done any <laughs> together? We've co-hosted a couple together. But never, never just a you and me podcast, and never just a me, Chris Beck, and Aaron Fritz podcast. I feel like I'm in the presence of celebrities. <laughs> yeah, right. That's not true. Whenever I listen to our feed now, I'm like, oh, it's just Allie's show, really. No. <laughs> Allie's been cranking them out. And for the better, too. The real celebrity comes on Monday with Michael Barazza. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's the diva. That's the diva. He gets like, he gets recognized at parties as like, you're the back table guy, right? Not just at parties, at LSU football games, where what are the chances you run into? What? No, I don't believe that. <laughs> it was at an LSU football game. Somebody came up to him and was like, and he told his wife who was with him, hey, this guy's amazing. Or like, this guy's no, the king. are you serious? Yeah. It was like an old school <laughs> moment. You know, like when Mitch gets like, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> the godfather. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the godfather. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right, well, for our audience today, guys, we're going to talk about tunneled, pleural, and peritoneal catheters, mostly for malignant ascites and effusions. We'll be using the terms Aspira and Plurex kind of interchangeably whenever we have when these cases come up. Even if it's at a hospital where we use Aspira, it might be written on the board as Plurex, right? Plurex chest, or a lot of times people, when they're referring to a peritoneal one, they'll say Aspira for whatever reason, but we know that these catheters are being used for both. I'm going to get into which devices people like from both Chris and, and Allie here more towards the end. I kind of want to talk more about the device-specific stuff toward the end. First, we're going to talk about indications, contraindications, and then get into like how you guys place these. And the other key thing being patient education and counseling and making sure home health is set up. So first of all, let's just talk about how are these patients presenting in your practice. Allie, let me start with you. Well, I work at a mostly hospital-based practice. We do have a small OBL too. And most often they present either as inpatients who've required repeat thoras and paras for whatever reasons, usually malignancy. They may be on the train towards hospice, but usually it's people who haven't committed to hospice yet because of insurance reasons. We'll talk about that. 
And then they get consulted for catheter placement, mainly for for dispo reasons and for quality of life reasons. So we have a pretty developed PA service in this practice, and the PAs will evaluate these patients and determine if they're a good candidate. If they have questions, they run it by the attending, and then the PAs are the ones placing the catheters in our practice. Really? Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> so because I guess they're doing a lot of the THORs and, and paras already, as we know, it's kind of a few extra steps. But let's, we'll get into that in a little bit. But Chris, where are these patients coming from in your practice? We have an interesting practice in that I have one hospital that I cover, both like Alley, hospital-based practice at both facilities. And at one place, there's an interventional pulmonologist. And for a majority of these, like he's kind of running that show. And so I rarely see them. Occasionally, like he takes vacation. And so like, we'll kind of get these patients, they get plugged into our system. But at our other facility where we are placing the lion's share of these, a majority of referrals are from pulmonology. Sometimes it's oncology, but they almost always come from pulmonology, like onc refers to pulm. Pulmonologists at this hospital are doing a large majority of the thoracentesis. And so they'll already have had a couple of thoras. And then depending on operator and kind of the patient situation, they'll get plugged in with us. Inpatients and outpatients we see. So like Allie's situation, a lot of times they're on the hospice train and it's a dispo issue. And then a lot of times it's patients who are just requiring frequent thoracentesis that they thought would go away. Or, you know, there's a lot of like ways you can treat malignant effusions, like they'll get chemotherapy or immunotherapy or whatever. And sometimes that addresses the underlying issue, but ultimately they will get referred to us. And then we just kind of plug in them under our system and get going. For me, similar to Ali, I mean, oncology is actually usually sending these over. Okay. Sometimes it'll be pulmonary for the plural ones, but usually these are patients that are, they're pretty sick. They're either in hospice or about to be in hospice. And this is a, you know, quality of life issue where they don't want to get stuck anymore. And oncology's used to sending them over to us for this reason. I want to talk a little bit about contraindications. Before we talk about contraindications, I also forgot to say that we're actually placing a fair amount of these for non-malignant effusions. Okay. That's what I was going to ask about in terms of contraindications, because in training, when I was taught to do them, it was really mostly for malignant effusion, malignant ascites. And I got in practice and I was like, huh, why aren't we doing these for just like ascites, like, you know, portal hypertension ascites, right? And it was one of my partners was like, no, we don't, because there's a risk of infection. And then I kind of researched it and looked into it, but I didn't do a high volume of them in training. So I didn't really learn about them and, and all the little challenges until I was doing a, a lot of them in practice. But Ali, do you know much about that? Like what the risk is for infection and why we don't do that? Yeah, then that's a good question. And that's kind of the same dogma approach that I had in training too. And to be fair, what, where I trained, the group that did all of the plurexes, aspiras, was the body division. So body radiologists are the ones who taught me how to do this. So I think there's just a different threshold of risk for different types of radiologists. And that was really the big thing was we definitely don't place them in people who have a longer lifespan, expected quality of life because of the risk of infection. And I think I remember one attending telling me having a Plurex catheter is a 100% chance of eventually getting an infection. It just depends on how long until you get that. So that's why we really only place them in end-of-life cases. But you're right. Now that I'm out in practice, I do. If people are getting repeat thoras or repeat paras or, for example, aren't a TIPS candidate but still have repeat paras, we're placing these kind of regularly. Maybe it's just one of those differences of training at an academic center versus practicing out in the real world and what the day-to-day challenges are. I am curious about the actual true risk of infection, though. I, I am not 
certain of those numbers. Chris, do you know or have you looked into that at all? Yeah, I did the lit search before we did the podcast, but it was like, I thought we were focusing the, for me, the difference between like these tunnel catheters for ascites and like for effusions, they're kind of different animals for me and I treat them very differently, but mm-hmm. kind of what I quote my patients, like if you're going to have a patient who's going to live longer than six months and for its non-malignant effusion, I think it's anywhere between under 10%, but above two. So I usually say like 5%. Yeah, you know, I know there's a range in these things and that's my best estimate. But you say you're getting these for non-malignant effusions. For sure. CHF patients a lot. Sometimes uh, portal hypertension patients. But, you know, again, a lot of those end up funneled into like your TIPS pathway. And sometimes like some autoimmune diseases, chylothorax. CHF is like what kind of jumps to mind. Can you think of some other ones, Allie? I know there are some. That's interesting that you put them for chylothorax because I would think that those just get mucked up or clogged up real fast with the Kyle. I haven't seen that in our practice. Maybe those guys all go to UW and get lymphangiograms or something. But yeah, mostly just old, frail CHF patients who maybe don't want to stay in the hospital for repeat thoras. And it's, again, quality of life because they're not, their heart's not getting better any faster and they, who knows what their lifespan is going to be. I mean, it's kind of the same with these like end-of-the-road portal hypertension patients, right? They're not doing well. And if they're not a TIPS candidate and there's nothing you can do for the underlying disease, like why not put one in for quality of life? Yeah, so whenever I think like non-malignant effusions, you think cardiac, hepatic, renal, pancreatitis, autoimmune, and then the chylothorax, you know, I, I mentioned that one probably a little bit early. I can only think of a couple of times we did that. We we're just trying to bridge them until we could get them for like a lymphangiogram. And there was just like the reason I thought about it is this patient's kind of always top of mind is like we just could never get, she had immunotherapy and so all her lymph nodes were sclerosed and then like she needed a tertiary refers. Long story short, we were never able to get thoracic duct embolization and she even went to Penn but she ended up with a Denver shunt. I want to talk a little bit about the most important part of this procedure is, I think, counseling the patient, whether it be before or after, whenever the patient's on the table and it's one of those, you peek under and you're like, hey, how's it going? You know, you quickly explain things. But it's also key to find dedicated time to educate them on how to take care of this, having home health come out. Hopefully all that stuff's set up ahead of time. And again, that's what physician extenders oftentimes will take care of. But I'm sometimes at a hospital where I don't have physician extenders and I got to do it all myself. I want to find out from you guys, is, do you have a process or is it just kind of depend on what hospital you're at and who you're working with? All right. So at the three bigs hospitals I work at and the OBL, the PAs do all of them. At the smaller hospitals, actually, if we are setting up an outpatient, we have them seen in our clinic beforehand for the full consult evaluation discussion and to fill out all the paperwork, right, for the insurance stuff. If somebody is an inpatient and we do them at that small hospital, it's unfortunately just a lot like for any other small case that we might do there. So we see them in pre-op. This practice isn't the sort where the doctors go up and round on the floor beforehand and see consults on patients, except in certain situations. But for routine, run-of-the-mill stuff like that, folks come down, often the nurse will talk them through it, and then we'll talk to them for like five minutes, consent them, and then put them on the table. So we don't have a very good system for those inpatients, which is the probably the vast majority of the Plurex catheters that we place. Same, very similar experience in that our program is not very mature or well-developed in this. But I'll also say that like we are not trying to be the kings of the tunnel <laughs> catheters for effusions or ascites. You can always make a case that like IRs are the best to put it in, sure. But this is a procedure where a lot of physicians can excel in this. 
we kind of shunt off a lot of that work on the referring docs. Like if pulmonology, palliative care, oncology wants like a tunnel catheter for a malignant effusion or malignant ascites, end of care. I mean, we certainly do our due diligence and make sure like the patient's been tapped a couple of times. It's an appropriate procedure. It's safe to do. But as far as like doing all that paperwork, I'm like, good luck. You guys can do it when it's done. Let me know. Happy to put the catheter in. That's one of the procedures that we're not trying to have the most developed. It's just a fact of like practice. We have limited resources and that's not where we're putting a lot of our time and energy. But all those things do need to get done. If for some reason a patient fell through the cracks, of course we would do it and we would do it with rigor. But the reality is like we kind of push it off on the referring docs. Especially since it sounds like you only get pleural catheters as one-offs when this pulmonology guy is not around, right? A lot of one-offs. Now there are plenty of patients for some reason. It's just like this kind of hodgepodge system. There's some patients who do get referred to us for thoras for whatever reason. And so we are doing the thoras, but a majority of the times the thoras are done by the pulmonologist and the tunnel catheters get referred to us. At that other hospital with the interventional pulmonologist, he does the thoras and he does the pleurex strains. So that's a sweet setup you got there. I love that. <laughs> I mean, like when he's like relatively new, so I love having him. Don't get me wrong, we have to cover when he's off, but like I'll take like him taking the Thor's off my plate and doing the Plurex and he's totally into it. Like whenever I think about IR guys can be good at this procedure and I see how enthusiastic he is about this stuff. Yeah. I'm like, well, I mean, <laughs> I just can't beat him. I mean, like that's just reality. He just knows so much more about effusions than me. Yeah. And he's so much more into it than me. So that's my best advice for interventional radiologists is find an interventional pulmonologist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I mean, I do like these procedures and I find them really, I don't know, satisfying because it is a quality of life thing and, and you want, it's miserable for them to keep having to come back, whether they're inpatient or outpatient to get a repeat Thora or Para. And so it's nice to have a home solution, right? We've talked about that with like peritoneal dialysis, but the follow-up, right? We just don't follow up with them. We don't see them. So it would be nice if pulmonary did more of these. I've never heard of a pulmonologist doing them. It sounds like maybe maybe they're starting to get trained at it. I mean, at least with our institutions, like the newer pulmonologists are more and more procedurally oriented, whether that's EBUS or like bronchoscopy related procedures or like chest tube stores and that kind of thing. I mean, that can vary widely, I'm sure, depending on the doc and the interest, but the newer docs that are coming out seem to be more procedurally oriented, single person experience there. Are you guys checking coags or is this pretty benign and you're not worried about coags, Chris? Oh, I check coags. I have to go back to, I'm, I'm on record. I'm very much now like defaulted to the SIR app. So I'll, I'll look at that. But yeah, yeah, same. Yeah, yeah. But I, <laughs> I very much check coags beforehand. A lot of these patients can be very coagulopathic. Now, oftentimes it's a risk benefit, right? I'm not necessarily going to balk on it because like a patient's coagulopathic with no chance of correcting that. Yeah. And because I think this can be a relatively benign procedure, but certainly it allows me to risk stratify and like have a more informed conversation with the patient about what that might mean for them. That's interesting. Are you looking it up right now, Allie? Yeah, because it says laboratory recommendations, INR less than or equal to three, platelets greater than or equal to 20K, but INR platelets not routinely <laughs> recommended. Technically for the SIR guidelines, we don't have to check coags, but I don't think I would feel comfortable placing one, especially in a very sick patient without these numbers. Yeah, I mean, I've never had one be particularly bloody, but I could see where it could be an issue with post-procedure bleeding at the site. I mean, the last thing you want is like a bloody effusion or bloody ascites that then clots up your tube. So yeah, I do think it's important. At what point do you pull the trigger on, okay, this is too many thoras, let's put in the catheter? Okay, so I'm a, I'm kind of a pushover for procedures. So if like a referring doctor is like, 
this person's had three or four Thoras. Can you put a tunnel line in, please? Then I'm like, okay, sure. It's got to be like at least like three or four, you know, um, one or two, especially with a new presentation of a large pleural effusion. That's not enough for me to put a catheter in and make somebody catheter bound for the foreseeable future. But I'm not a real stickler about, oh, they need to be heading towards hospice or heading towards palliative care before we put one in. That's for the plural ones. And then for the peritoneal ones, I would say like at least half the time the patients haven't had a complete workup for a TIPS. And that's actually a great place to capture those patients, right? Because then you can just say, okay, well, we'll see them in clinic and we'll talk about if a plurex is the right thing for them or if it's a TIPS consult. And then it gives the referrer something that they can hang their hat on that they know that this problem is going to be addressed, right? But it also doesn't commit you to placing this catheter. What's your What's your algorithm, Chris? So minimum number two and preferably, like you said, three or four. I'm not hard on fast on this either. And, you know, so much of it is like patient specific, like a patient who's has like a malignant effusion that brought him into the hospital, got tapped and then recurred like three days later. That's like a different deal than something else that's like, oh, we see this patient every four weeks for a Thora. And so like, it's hard to like paint it with a, a broad brush, but definitely not one. Two, sometimes if it's like rapidly onset and rapidly accumulating, but three and four is like, I think a good number that established like chronicity, persistence, and that the patient can benefit from like long-term plural drainage. And one of the important things like to drill down for the some of the audience is that like, I'm not conservative about putting these in, but there's a reason that I want the patient to have enough flow to keep these things open. If they're just getting tapped like every month, like sometimes I worry that there's just not enough pleural fluid in there to be flowing through the catheter to where it's like in between drainages, it's just going to get gunked or clogged up, gunked being the medical term for it. Do you ever just put in like non-tunnel chest tubes for those people that are recurring really fast just to see if they can medically optimize them before you have to place a tunneled catheter? For sure. That's a scenario that plays out pretty regularly in that, you know, you're doing a Thora and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, well, let's see if like we can get a, a chest tube in them. And while everyone's getting their ducks in a row to like treat the underlying issue. I've done it for heart failure, but not for cancer patients. Like when it's cancer and it's just like, we get pressured by oncologists sometimes and sometimes they come to us right away. They haven't had a Thora yet. They've just had a, they've been pan scanned they got a huge effusion and they're like, oh, we're going to send this patient home on hospice. Can you just put in the tunnel catheter? And I'm like, can we try just doing a Thora first and see if it comes back, right? And then if it comes back in a few days and, and we always say, hey, we can, we can place the tunnel catheter as an outpatient. It doesn't have to be done while they're inpatient. And so that's what I always have to, and so it's worth obviously having a discussion doing what's best for the patient, for their condition, for their home situation. Because a lot of times these docs forget that these patients need home health care to help take care of the catheter. And so it's kind of a case by case. That's why I hate when it just pops up on my schedule and I don't have time to like properly talk to the patient, their family members about what to expect. And, and when that conversation happens afterwards, sometimes you get those wide eyes or like, whoa, wait, what are we doing? And that's where the patient education piece really becomes super important. To speak to your point, the challenge about talking about tunnel catheters, either with effusions or ascites, is that there's just, you see just such a wide range of patients, like at all different stages of their effusions, of their life cycle. And so that's why it's hard to paint it with a broad brush. But I think this is one of those procedures where it's good to slow down. Like if you get a consult on a Tuesday, 
I don't feel like compelled at all to have that procedure done by Tuesday and certainly not Wednesday or Thursday. Sometimes it takes time for patients to get there. Sometimes it's just totally more appropriate to like do a Thora or a Para, live to fight another day and have that patient be able to process like, this is where your disease is heading. Like I've prepped you that like this effusion is going to come back. Let me prove to you that it's going to come back. And so this is a procedure where I like to pump the brakes a little bit and slow down. Now I get it. There's all kinds of patients where like pumping the brakes is like the difference between spending their last couple of days at home. And so I'm not saying that, but yeah, I think that like the referring docs sometimes get like guns blazing, like get this catheter in so we can get them out of here. When it's like, look, we can always tap this and bring them back as an outpatient. That's always in your back pocket, which is a really, really good tip. Exactly. All right. Well, let's walk through a standard. Let's start with plural with you, Chris, since that sounds like what you're doing more of, and then we can do peritoneal. And there's a lot of crossover, so peritoneal doesn't have to be quite as long. But Chris, tell us, like, first of all, patient positioning. I have a way I, I position these, but let's say it's a, a right plural fusion. How do you usually position them on the table to start? Supine with a roll under the right hip. So I just have them a little bit opened up so I can get access to the mid-axillary line. Perfect, yeah. But let me back up even one further. Cath lab, CT, ultrasound, bedside, where do you do it? Always cath lab for me. I wish it was always cath. That, that's my preferred location. The reality is sometimes I just don't have access to the cath lab like I do CAT scan or ultrasound. And so out of those, cath lab's number one, CT's number two, ultrasound's number three. I just don't do them bedside. A roll underneath the left hip, it's important for me to like not have the roll underneath the back. Like I want the roll underneath the hip to open up. I want to have like access to that thorax. So left, so because we started with the right, Oh, I'm sorry. So if it's the right side, you're going to have the roll under the right hip, right? So that it opens up that right. Yeah, so I can open up their right side. I can see more towards the posterior part of it. Not that I want to stick posteriorly, but, you know, if you're sticking with ultrasound, the ultrasound's got to be in a certain position. You have to have enough window. Preferably ipsilateral arm up and above the head. I like that because if you're doing for effusions, open up the intercostal space. I'll pick my spot with either CT or ultrasound, Lido, lots of Lido, dermatotomy, entry site with like the UE needle or whatever synthesis needle comes in the kit, get my wire in. And then once my wire's in, you kind of just like treat it like a tunnel dialysis catheter and that pick a spot that's like five or six inches away or so five or six centimeters away from the pleural entry site. And I like to try and put it in a position where to my best guess, it would be easily accessible and comfortable for the patient. So I don't like put it right over a bone. I try and put it over like kind of a loose flabby part of the skin if that exists and gentle curves. Like I don't like any big acute angles. Like I don't go from like, that's hard to explain, but you know, I don't try and like tunnel one way, but I'm sticking the plural site in another, which I've seen done. So nice gentle curves, like vectors that make sense. Then I'll bring the catheter or the centesis entry site. And so now I've got it pulled through. I don't think I use a dilator. I just go straight to the peel away sheath and then pull the peel away sheath. I don't pinch the valve or anything. I just dunk the catheter in, peel away sheath comes out, pull it back just a little bit. So that cuff is kind of centered. Like maybe it's not like at the skin surface, but it's not so deep where I have to like just dissect six centimeters down to like pull it out later and then tie it off with ethylon, clue the skin entry site and that's it. And you drain right then and there, like whatever's in there. I drain on the table. One, I want to make sure that the catheter works and then that it's in a good position to drain. If I place it under CT, you know you know exactly where it is. If you place it under fluoroscopy, you know exactly where it is. If you play with it with ultrasound, I mean, it's critical that you, you gotta have good drainage or else like, you know, what are we here for? Yeah. Well, I forgot one like big contraindication is 
basically if they just got tapped that day, right? Like, oh yeah, you know, if they're empty, then there's nothing to stick. And so that has happened, right? Where they're like, they order a Thora and a Cathar on the same day and the Thora gets done. And then the Cath Lab's like, what are we doing here? Are we actually going to, it's like, no, now we got to wait two or three days for it to build up if it builds up, you know, that's another thing that can be a headache and can happen. A couple of things to add to your technique. That's exactly how I do it, Chris. When I do the tunnel, I think they recommend like six to 10 centimeters. Oh, really? And it's all... I didn't know that. Yeah. So like, I'm usually like three inches. Like I, I measure about three inches. Okay. And that's about, you know, that's about six to 10 centimeters. And it depends on the size of the, of the, of the person. And so what I always do is I tunnel along that intercostal space. So like you were saying, like you don't want it to be right over the rib. So I just have it follow between the ribs in that space. And then that way, like you say, it's not right over a bone because that can cause a kinking. And then I like what you said about it being like, you know, and usually that's where the fluid is, right? Because it's dependent is you're angling your UE into the posterior dependent space so that your wire goes posterior. So then your catheter, as it's going down, goes posterior. So you have a nice smooth angle, right? It's not like an acute angle. The procedure is easy. Like Ali said, you guys have your PAs to them. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the procedure is straightforward. There's just a couple nuances to it. And one of the nuances I will say is your, where your skin entry site is and like that kind of trajectory of the needle as you're entering the pleural space. I used to like when I was doing it with ultrasound and cath lab, kind of just go, I give myself a beautiful picture with ultrasound. So I'm intercostal and then I stick and then I kind of torque the needle up. But really what I've kind of gotten to now is identify where a big pocket of fluid is. I'll actually put the needle a little bit more inferiorly and it's almost like I'm poking their rib. And then I just continue to work that needle cranial and then I'll pop over that rib. I just think that one, it creates like a nice, like smooth entry site where you don't have like that angle where you're going directly lateral or directly into the pleural fluid. You're angled more up. And I don't like it when the catheter, sometimes like a lot of patients have some intercostal pain. And so... I don't know why, but I just feel like the further away I am from the undersurface, like oversurface is like, okay, undersurface to me is where they get a lot of the pain. Anecdotal. Well, another reason to check coax, right? I mean, you could potentially injure the intercostal artery and nerve. So that's another good reason to go over. The place that I've seen people go wrong with plural is just with the end location of the catheter, right? So if it lands in the fissure near the apex, then you're hosed. See what I did there? (laughs) You should definitely try and figure that out and get it in the right place before you make your tunnel and everything. For a stretch there at a different job, I was at the pulmonologists were placing them and they were always landing in the apex. And so we just kept having to take those out and replace them. But but yeah, that's like the only real place I've seen people mess up bad with the Plurex catheters, which I think if you're doing it under fluoro, you can avoid that pretty easily. Hold on. What do you mean? You Hold on. You can't lay them in the apex? What do you mean? No, no, I'm serious. Like I, oh. I sometimes will land like mine, like kind of track dependently and then like they're on the posterior margin. Oh, I guess that's okay. But like a lot of times I see them basically just going straight through the fissure and then. Okay. All right. I was like, oh my God. Like I, like, it, I felt like so silly. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, oh no, sometimes mine are pretty high. No, I, yeah, I yeah, didn't yeah, mean okay. it like that. No, but just basically, right. Like you said, the, what's the word you used, Chris? You want to watch your angles. What did you say? Vectors. Yes. Well, yeah, going through the fissure, yeah, that would be problematic. The other question is because pleural space is smaller than peritoneal space, I always cut mine because they're excessively long, right? So for a pleural, I cut, I don't know, maybe a few inches off. I mean, they're really long. So like 
I might even cut it half to the size because you don't need that much length. And as long as it's positioned well, it actually might help prevent it being malpositioned by going somewhere it shouldn't by being a little bit shorter. What do you guys think about that? One thing I learned very recently, like I think within the past week, is that there's a plural kit and a peritoneal kit, but a lot of places will only stock one of them for prices. So I'm not sure if I've been using the plural kit because it seems like it's shorter then I don't have to do that. But yeah, if I'm using the peritoneal kit, I'll definitely cut it. And one is cheaper than the other two. I'm not sure which one. Probably the peritoneal. And that's why it's, that's why we, that's all we have is the peritoneal one. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. Let's, let's talk peritoneal. Allie, walk us through your approach. Well, I just have them supine. I'm right-handed. So I, I usually just out of ease, just place it on the left side actually, but it doesn't matter. I, I usually take a look and see kind of where the biggest pocket of fluid is too. I think I, I learned in training that it has to be at least five centimeters worth of pocket to place it, but I don't think that's a hard and fast rule. I try to place it away from any places that have peritoneal carcinomatosis because the catheter might get gunked up, as we like to say, in that stuff um, and not work so well. And then the IFU guidelines actually say that the insertion site is usually lateral to midline, six to 10 centimeters below the costal margin and above the patient's belt line. Now, when I do peritoneal dialysis catheters, I have patients show me where their belt line is, but I haven't really made that a practice for when I do tunnel peritoneal catheters, but maybe I should. No, don't do that. Chris says, don't do that. It's a waste of time. It probably is a waste of time. I think whatever you're doing is just fine. Yeah. And then I just mark where the catheter exit site is. Again, I use the smoothest vector. Man, I'm totally going to steal that. I love that. (laughs) I feel embarrassed for saying it now. (laughs) Um, which is usually five to eight centimeters superior medial to the guide wire insertion site so that the patients will be able to manipulate it themselves if they need to. Drape and prep, just numb up the excess site, do the excess. I usually just do excess with like a UE needle. And sometimes I use the valve UE needle just so it doesn't spray everywhere. Maybe because I'm a millennial and I don't use cheap needles for anything. <laughs> <laughs> and then, except for crossing long segment CTOs, that's it. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and then I put the guide wire through it. Do you guys use the kit guide wire or do you like to change over to an Amplatz wire or stiff glide? I like Amplatz for everything. Kid wires suck. <laughs> Universally suck. Wouldn't you say? I mean. Yeah. What is with that? Why can't people like make good kit wires? Thank you. <laughs> Chris, Chris is rolling his <laughs> uh, eyes. No, I mean, I'll, I will sometimes use the kit wire, but I prefer to have like a longer wire. I use whatever's in our cath lab pack, which is just like a Benson. So I don't actually, it's very infrequent that I actually get an Amplatz or anything. Oh. Yeah. Like, so it's not like super stiff wire. I like to use Amplatz too, and then put Amplatz through it, take my introducer out, make sure I make my tunnel do the tunnel tract, pull it through, do the peel away. One thing I I learned when I was first starting these was I always tried to make a really, really small incision putting my peel away in, right? And that just, that makes it really tough to do. So I think one of the the most important things that an early mentor taught me was make that incision bigger than you think you need it to be. You basically have to have like two catheters worth through to get that through, right? So make that incision a little bigger and then push it in, make sure it's working and hook it up. I think like all in all, the procedure takes 15 minutes to do start to finish, right? Not a difficult procedure, but it is a little bit more nuanced than a tunnel dialysis catheter placement, for example, in the neck or in the groin, because you have carte blanche with the abdomen, right? Like you can start anywhere, you can have your tunnel go anywhere. And that kind of planning and knowing where to go, I think is the most important part of the procedure. 
I like, do you use the, um, in the Plurex kit, it's like this little orange stiffener that goes into the catheter. Do you use that? Definitely. Like, why not? It's there and it makes it stiffer and easier to push through the peel away. Might as well. Have you seen any downsides to using it? I don't have any other than that sometimes, I mean, you just have to put it in. It's one more thing, I guess. Some of my partners don't, but the reason I like it really is just sometimes like you get, you stick in an abdomen or like a really tight effusion. It's like a gusher. And so the quicker you can get that catheter in, like the less it's going pouring out over you. But I'm with you. It's also like gives you a little bit stiffer catheter to dunk. Yeah. And I think it tends to go more freely, like somewhere where you want it to go in the abdomen, especially, right? Whereas it's so frustrating when you place one in the abdomen and it just kind of sticks to the side and it's like up against the abdominal wall and, and it didn't really go dependent. Sometimes in that case, I'll take my amplast and try and reposition it. That's where I think the stiffener really helps. I, w- I wanted to talk about this anyway. There was a post on the SIR forum by Gabriel Werder where he was having issues and he was trying to decide on the best device. And I was thinking about it. I'm like, yeah, I could see his frustration with where like some devices they were getting calls from the ER because the Plurex, I guess, wouldn't connect to wall suction and stuff like that. I've and I haven't seen the other one, the other devices are like I've never seen ASEPT on the shelf anywhere or the rocket on the shelf anywhere. I've only ever seen Plurex and Aspira. And I can't really tell you the difference between the two of them. You know, like you said, if somebody had it on the back table, it's just like, okay, looks like another, you know, tunnel catheter. Do you guys know do you guys know any big differences? The Plurex has a proprietary hookup. I know that. And then the Aspira, I think it's just a standard lure lock. But what I will say, like, what other catheter that you decide, I think the important thing is, I mean, look, if you're starting like DeNovo and you want to look at all the different ones, that's fine. I mean, I think that's great. You see what resources are available to you, both from like the reps that stock them to like what price you can get. But in the end, the ER visits or like the adapters that come with all the kits, like whether you can get home health, like their familiarity with it, it's going to be like location specific. And I think you just have to work out a couple of those things, but none of the hurdles with any of the brands are insurmountable. Like, I don't think, I think if you just have like a little bit of due diligence ahead of time, like all these little problem things that you're going to run into are very, very solvable from ER visits to home supplies. Yeah, I'll tell you the big difference I saw early on when I was learning this was, and this is going to be like location specific, is my BARD rep, this was back before BD purchased BARD when it was Plurex, they would come in and counsel the patient, educate the patient. They would fill out all my paperwork and make sure that those patients got those supplies. Wow. And that was the biggest thing. That was such a huge help. And so if there's any sales reps listening right now, like, that's where you can help your docs out with that kind of stuff. And if you don't have time to be there for every case, that's totally reasonable. But like train the nerd, like find one quarterback or one point person to train up so that that's taken care of so that the doc doesn't have to worry about. Like one hospital I go to, the doc's so stressed out about the patient getting the supplies. He's like faxing it himself. And I'm like, dude, I don't have time to like fill it out, fax it, and then follow up with the company a day later. Like nobody has time for that, right? Yeah. But there are people at the hospital that have time for that. There's a lot of people sitting around. So, you know, assign somebody to do that, (laughs) right? Delegate and elevate. I don't think you're allowed to say that, Aaron. (laughs) There there are at my house. The the hospitals I work, there's a lot of people sitting around and they could be doing something. Agreed. 
so much of our job, and I think we've talked about this on other episodes, but like so much of our job satisfaction as doctors too is making somebody else do a lot of those administrative tasks yeah. that we get charged with that like really do not need to be our job yeah. and can easily be done by a nurse, a tech, an administrator, a registration specialist, getting that stuff off of our plate so we can just focus and be efficient at our procedures. Yeah, exactly. That I think is a huge source of frustration for us that we have all, there's more of this that we have to do. There's more charting that we have to put in our EMRs. It's It's gotten out of control. The other question I forgot to ask you guys, are you guys just doing moderate sedation for these patients, Lido only, generally a seizure? I mean, for me, it's just moderate sedation. Moderate sedation for me. Same. Not a particularly painful procedure when considering like a lot of these patients have been stuck before. I will say though, like I do think it is important. I'm a big advocate of lidocaine. Like lidocaine is like, I hate it when like someone just like gives me the 5ml vial and like you have all the lidocaine you need. I'm like, that's never how much I need. Yes, you're right. I'm just do not feel compelled to like be limited by the 5ml vial that comes in whatever shitty kit someone hands to me. But I, I do like a lot of lidocaine and some decent sedation for these because especially with the pleural catheters, when they start to splint and bring down that arm or for some reason, anything that they do like that kind of like narrows that area, I feel like it can kind of pinch your catheter as it's going in. It can kind of, that's like the one hiccup that like can come up periodically is like when you have like a really thin patient or you just don't have a good intercostal space to work with. I don't like it when the PLA sheath gets kind of pinched. That creates like sticky point, but few and far. What do you guys do about loculated effusions? You guys have many of these come back where they're just not draining and then, you know, they get a CT or you're looking at ultrasound and you see septations all over the place. What do you guys do about those? I'd like to hear what Allie does first. That's a really hard one. And honestly, that's probably like the number one complaint we get about it. The classic scenario is ER calls you because patient has had a pleurex catheter and it's not working and nothing has drained for like the past week or whatever. Our algorithm for that is we just start by getting a CT scan to see if there's anything left, right? And then if there is something left, we try to flush it, right? Because it could just be clogged up. And then if that doesn't work and it doesn't start draining immediately, we'll put an ultrasound probe on it. If it looks like it's loculated, I mean, there's not really a great solution for it. Some of the thoracic surgery guys in our group will do TPA through that to clear it up. But none of the IR doctors are really proponents of that. I'd love to know if that worked. Anytime I see the surgeons do it or the medicine floor do it, I it hasn't been super successful, but maybe I have bias because I just see the ones that fail, right? And then sometimes what we'll do is we'll take it out and put it in an area that doesn't look loculated, right? Or we'll talk to the patient and see how their symptoms are because a lot of times when it's loculated, it's small enough that the patients aren't having significant symptoms from it, right? And so then you're like, well, the whole point of this is for symptoms, right? It's not just to make your pleural space drained. And maybe loculation is the first step towards pleurodesis. So I don't have a great solution for when it's loculated, just to, to come back to your question. Do you guys have one? Actually, I thought your algorithm was like perfect. And like you said, the thing that's the key question is that, is the patient still symptomatic? And like the scenario that you're describing, you put it in, it's like a big effusion. It's been tapped before, you know, it's free flowing, but all of a sudden, for whatever reason, now it comes back inoculated. The patient comes to the ER and, you know, they've been getting a liter off religiously for one week and all of a sudden it's not. And that's an issue. But it's like, well, how symptomatic are you? Like, are we meeting your treatment goals? And that is like the absolute key question. And then like from like a, to echo Ali's point, like what you do there. You get the CT scan, put an ultrasound probe on it. You know, you want to see if there's residual fluid. Is it truly loculated? How complex it is? And sometimes at that point, 
I'd like to start from the position, even though there's a plural catheter in there, and so you do have some options. I do like TPA, a TPA installation. I say that I like it, only that's what I recommend, but I'm not the one who has to like deal with it. The pulmonologists do, and actually sometimes like you can salvage catheters or like you end up in a big pocket and you're clearing away that pocket. Sometimes like the decision is just to pull the catheter and you just have to manage it differently than the effusion that you started with. Can you walk me through, Chris, how you do the TPA installation? Because maybe that's where we differ on that. Yeah, to give us your cocktail so that maybe we can try something more successful. I, I don't want to pretend like I have the t- cocktail. I just say, hey, you guys need to try like a TPA installation. Oh. Um, but if I but if I did, like I've, I, like I've done TPA for other things, if I had to think, I'd probably do 10. And I'm scared to like if people are going to start trying this on the, their floor patients. But I think like systemic TPA and then like TPA into a cavity are very different things and I treat them differently. Now, nursing may not do that. So, you know, you may have to like escalate the level of care because the last thing you want to do is be the guy up there futzing around, like doing the TPA insulation. Like this is a medication administration and a safe practice, but I probably do 10 milligrams of TPA and like a quarter or half a liter of fluid, instill it for 30 to 60 minutes and then try and pull it out afterwards. And you document how much goes in, how much comes out. And so actually I have to walk that back. Half a liter of fluid seems like way too much, but like 200 to 250 cc's, like I'd, I'd want like a good volume of instillate or saline with uh, about 10 milligrams of TPA and then see see what you get out at the end. Yeah. See, that's what makes me nervous is like, is a nurse going to give it IV or is she going to actually, you know what I mean? So I would, I would go and do it myself. Yeah. Okay. I mean, look, I'm not. Like there's always this scenario, like if Aaron Fritz does it, is it going to be safer and better than you know, maybe the RN on the floor? Probably. But like Aaron Fritz's time is very finite. Sometimes you just have to like, you know, put your orders in, make it clear. Yeah. Tech is handy because tech can't give an IV medication. Allie, when the TPA doesn't work and that's been tried and, and there's clearly subtations is, I will actually, if, if the vector's just right, I'll take a wire, an Amplatz wire and run it through there and see if I can break up some of the septations with the amplats. And, you know, if that doesn't work, then I have that conversation with them like, hey, this isn't working. It's not going to work, right? So let's pull it out. And if you want another catheter in, maybe we could do a pigtail in the biggest pocket just for relief and go from there because that's if they're going to stay inpatient. Now, clearly you can't send them home like that. Have you, do you guys ever send them home with a pigtail without... I mean, we do in other cavities, right? But I guess it's a little bit more problematic when it's when it's in the chest. Yeah, you have a pleurivac container. I'm really, really reluctant to do it, but have with a couple of patients that Cospis swears up and down to me that they're not going to make it like past the week. And so is it my favorite thing to do? No, but like when you look at a patient that's terminally ill and it's the difference between trying to sort out this very difficult, complex pleural effusion that, you know, sometimes it just takes time versus like putting a pigtail, cut the Gordian knot, get them home. I'm all about it. Go ahead, put it in and then wish them their best. I think, again, it goes back to like the the difficulty in talking about different patient populations and then like in a regular effusion versus like a loculated effusion. What I will say is though, if you do have like a pretty loculated effusion, I don't, I mean, it can vary from patient to patient, but I think you want to look at other things to sort out because there's a lot of different ways. Like we haven't even talked about like pleurodesis or getting to like the underlying etiology of like treating the effusions, like this is not like the all 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 end all cure for like pleural effusions. And sometimes like with loculated effusions, I feel like it's trying to like put a square peg in a round hole that it's just sometimes it's just not a good fit for patients. All right. I think that does it. Thank you guys so much. All right. Thanks, Aaron. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jamila Kennebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening.